right, welcome to day 266 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 55 through 57, verse 13, Psalm 110, and Ephesians 2. Okay, so uh, Isaiah 55 begins with this general invitation um, to people, um, basically using a metaphor of like purchasing food in the marketplace, um, drinking, eating, and um, you know, it begins with "Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters." Right? Which, which I, I think we could say in here, there are definitely overtones of some of the stuff that Jesus later says. Not saying like that. There's, I mean, there might be, but. Um, you know, there's some connection here with like uh, John seven thirty seven, right? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Um, you also get like John six sounding stuff in here, like the the come and eat and drink, and the 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 way. And when Jesus is like, you know, the true food is my my body. The the true blood is uh, the true drink is my blood. Um, the idea that. Um, a, a faithful relationship with the Lord is true sustenance. So, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. So, that's your first clue. You're looking at a metaphor, right? That there's no money required, but you're being urged to come and um, and buy things. Come buy and eat, but without money. Uh, buy wine and milk, okay? All things that are kind of metaphors for this future blessed kingdom that God is promising to those who love him, to those who know him, without money, though, and without price, um, because you've been wasting your time. And this is convicting to all of us, right? Like, what do we spend our time and our resources on pursuing? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? We might insert there, truly bread, right? And you labor uh, your work, right? That your work. We spend a lot of our our days working and laboring, and we do that to gain. But what truly are you gaining uh, by all your labor? Um, and then we find in uh, like the second half of verse two and ver- and the first half of verse three, um, the different ways in which we buy, the different ways in which we eat. Like, what do those metaphors stand for? And it's it's basically listening to and learning from the Lord. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. Um, delight yourselves in rich food. Okay, so it's not only like you're going to sit down, shut up, and listen, right? But that you're actually going to find enjoyment in what you're hearing, in hearing the way of the Lord, right? That the person who is truly regenerate, the person who truly knows God, is someone who not only listens, and may, we might even say listening includes doing what one says, right? Are, are, are you really listening if you're not doing? But not only that, but notice here that there's a delight in it. We delight to do what God uh, requires of us. Um, and again, listening, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make, for those who do this, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, a barit olam, a covenant that will last forever, but it's not, and it's not just any covenant, right? And this isn't, and and this isn't just like covenantal language being used in general. But notice how that it's specifically plugged in to the Davidic covenant, which is very interesting, right? So the everlasting covenant I'm going to make with you um, is the covenant characterized by God's what He calls here steadfast, sure love for David. And this is interesting because if you go back and you read the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and other relevant biblical passages, it's very much a covenant with the house of David. It's very much between God and his posterity. But here we see this truth that I think is evident there in that, but is even more clear here now that it is a covenant with God's people through the Davidic king, so that, that this Davidic king will always reign over you, right? So it's not just this personal thing between David and all his sons, like it's always like a one-on-one thing, whoever the Davidic king is reigning, it's between him and God and nobody else. No, the, the blessings of this Davidic covenant are mediated through this Davidic king, they come to us through him. Um, and, um, and he here is being made a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, and note there the plurality. So if there is an expansion on this mediated Davidic covenant with the people of God, uh, it is this, that it's not merely the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah, but now 
it's that, but there's other peoples who are not previously known to the people of God, meaning like there's not previously a covenantal relationship with them, also be incorporated, it being incorporated into this. Uh, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Uh, because of Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Um, and uh, this word for this this word is not the normal word that we would associate uh, in Hebrew with being glorified. You can also translate this make beautiful or sometimes to boast. Like remember in 1015, shall the axe boast over the one who 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 wields it? The same verb there in Hebrew, pa'ar. Um, it can mean be pleased. And so however we want to take that, this is what will be true of this everlasting covenant that God is now proposing. Um, but this is, but there's, it's not just um, come to the Lord in general, but come to the Lord in repentance. So the next section is going to deal with what repentance is like. So seek Yahweh while he may, may be found, call upon him while he is near. So here, today is the day while you have the opportunity to. You know you have today. You don't know you have tomorrow. And while God is opening his arms to you, now, that is the time. Now is the time to come to him. Um, and look. And so what repentance looks like, it looks like seeking the Lord. It looks also here like for the wicked forsaking his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So there is a turning from sin, not just to God, a returning to Yahweh so that uh, for, for forgiveness, right? Everybody who is being called, there's something, there is some sin you need to leave behind, and the guilt that you have incurred because of it will be met with God's compassion, with his forgiveness. He will abundantly pardon. Um, and and why? Because this is, this is strange, right? Because humans, we like to keep a grudge. We like to hold on to things when people wrong us. And But why can we be assured that God will not act in this very human way? Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, he says. Neither are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, in other words, and, and to an extent that you can't even imagine, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, which is, of course, is important for us to keep in mind all the time when we are considering the ways of God, that there is, there's always going to be some aspect of it that is, that is uh, way beyond us, that we can't just intuit. And we are dependent on God, therefore, for him to reveal himself to us. Um, this is why, one of the reasons why I sometimes say that um, some of the questions that I am uh, you know, I think we do the best we can with them, but some of the questions that I have the most, um, you know, skeptical eye towards are questions that begin with the question, why would God dot, dot, dot? Because we're dealing with a being whose ways are are higher than our ways, as the heavens are than the earth. And so we don't, we, we, we can't always just expect to know why God does the things he can. And the, the cool thing about this passage is that the amazing thing is not like, oh, why did God let this hard thing happen to me? But, but how can I be assured of his mercy? Because a person would want to get back at me. A person would want to have vengeance. But God says to all who turn to me in this way, I will have abundant mercy and abundant compassion. And God wants us to be confident about this. He wants us to have a certainty uh, that his word that he will do according to what he is promising now despite looking around and seeing what circumstances are like and being like well is god really faithful to us look what he says here as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but what are the earth so they have a purpose right they do a thing and what do they do they bring life they bring forth uh, they make the the earth bring forth and sprout uh, giving seed to the sower, so the plants produce the seed that you need for the next crop, the bread to the eater. So all these things that produce life and goodness, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth not return to me empty, same word that is used at time for empty-handedness. No, they will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so if, if you need to be reminded, exiles, what my promises to you is that you will go out 
in joy. You will be led forth in peace. So uh, once again, we see the new exodus happening, the returning, the return from exile bound up with these promises. Um, and I like here too, right? It's not only go out, not only led forth, but also in joy, in peace. Well, what, what they are experiencing, what their hearts are experiencing as this happens is part of the promise. Um, and you've got this picture that we that Isaiah likes to talk like this a lot. We know this by now of the creation celebrating the mountains, um, uh, breaking forth into singing, the trees of the field clapping their hands, and uh, other uh, Isaianic uh, imagery here. Instead of a thorn, right, which is what you don't uh, the, the an undesirable plant, you're going to get this mighty cypress. And instead of the briar, it will come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. <clears throat> now, we've already seen that part of this promise is aimed towards foreigners. Now, chapter 56 is going to take that and run with this. So you get what sounds like kind of like this a standard, um, a standard way of calling his people, God's people, to repentance. Keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Um, and interestingly there, keep in mind that is think these are things that we do to other people, right? It's not just simply uh, Godward, but our Godward orientation is expressed in how we are to others. Justice, righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Um, I think this is uh, this stands out to me because um, I think this is a good illustration of the way that Paul uses the concept of the righteousness of God in his letters. I don't know if you remember when we were in Romans, but I noted that there's some debate over what exactly is meant by that expression. In Greek, the dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God, and um, and there it is, the, the unveiling of his, of his righteousness in salvation, okay, and sometimes in judgment as well. But here, note the connection between this attribute of God, this righteousness, um, and salvation. Blessed is the man who does this, keeping justice and righteousness. The son of man who holds it fast. Here we have another use of that expression, son of man, to mean mere human, something like that. And then throughout this passage, we see the importance placed on keeping the Sabbath. Why is the Sabbath so important? Well, it's important um, aside from being this, this rhythm that God has put in creation, right? But it is, this is the, the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. Um, the, the, so you're keeping, that, you're keeping his covenant with you, Israel. You're keeping the Sabbath, not profaning it and you're keeping your hand from doing evil. So not only just this, you know, the formal sign of the covenant, but also these, the, the moral um, uh, exhortations that it has. But then in verse 3, it introduces the individual whom this is aimed at. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to, the, to, to Yahweh. Um, remember, 57.5, we read a few minutes ago, uh, this is the nation that you did not know, but now the foreigner who has come and joined himself to Yahweh, uh, let him not say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people, right? I'm going to be fully incorporated, and not only the foreigner who doesn't know the Lord, but also the eunuch, because remember how important posterity is in a, you know, a bunch of these covenants, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, um, uh, that that this is and and just like culturally right like the way your name is carried forth is through your offspring so here is a person who um you know has does does is not able to look forward to this is not able to um has no prospects in terms of um the things that are important in this world uh, at least from from their from their standpoint um uh, but let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, okay? That, that is, that produces no seed or no fruit, no fruit with seed in it, you might say. Um, For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs, and here it is again, who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me. So not just any eunuch, but the eunuch who actually turns to the Lord and obeys him, who holds fast my covenant, 
I will give him in my house and within my walls, right, in my home. You might not have an enduring home for yourself, but I do. This is the house of God. I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name, okay? And and name is often um, kind of um, a way of describing um, this posterity. Remember in Genesis 12, where God promises to make Abraham a great name. I will give him a monument and a name. Monuments are there uh, as a remembrance, right, so that you can look and remember this person. You will not be forgotten by future generations. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And if indeed name here does denote posterity, I think this is interesting in how it informs uh, chapter 53, verse 10, the suffering servant, right? And we talked about all its connections to Jesus and the way it's pretty clearly fulfilled in him. But one of the signs of his victory, of the servant's victory that it says there, is that he will see his offspring. And so I think like maybe like a very base level objection to that being referring to Jesus is right Jesus doesn't have literal offspring but here we see another place where this is used that that kind of expression is used metaphorically um symbolically we might say um and so I think like that's how we are to take that expression there in chapter 53 he will see his offspring he will prolong his days is is a um is a, is a way of saying that that he will not be overcome by death despite his suffering. And then once again, to the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to be his servants. And here we have it again, everyone who keeps his Sabbath does not profane it. Notice that's been said three times now, and holds fast my covenant. That also has been said these I will bring to my holy mountain, right, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to make them joyful in my, my house of prayer. And this indeed is the passage that Jesus cites in Matthew 21, 13, or in its parallels in uh, Mark eleven seventeen or Luke 19, 46, where he's in the court of the Gentiles, and they've, they've turned it into this marketplace, right, where they're selling these animals and exchanging money and stuff. And he says, it is said my house will be called a house of prayer. And I noted that part of like maybe like the, the rich meaning of that is that this is the place in the temple where these foreigners who have joined themselves to the Lord are allowed to come. These uh, may, maybe ones who are in the process of coming, right? Because if you're in the court of Gentiles, you haven't fully proselytized, but you are a God-fearer. This is where you are welcome, in, but not any further. So here's this well, place where we're welcoming foreigners who are in the process of doing Isaiah 56, and this has been turned into a marketplace now. Okay, and that's the issue that Jesus takes with it, and this is the passage that he cites, and you can see how in line with the context that this is. Speaking of being in line with the context, I also think it's very significant that all this stuff that's being said from the you know, right, the, the the messianic kingdom, the receiving true food um, from the Lord, um, the the bringing in of foreigners, that this is all taking place in the aftermath of the, the, the climax of the suffering servant songs, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that these promises are all now being bound together, okay, and that, that, they, will, uh, that they will ultimately find their fulfillment together. So this foreigner who has joined themselves to the Lord is now bring, his burnt offerings and sacrifices are going to be accepted on my altar. Um, for my house shall be called, and here it is again, a house of prayer for all peoples, not just for Judah, not just for Israel. Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, right? I'm not forgetting you, Israel, and, and this is kind of like, you're the apple of my eye, right? But here, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Or maybe how Jesus puts this in another context, right? I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Um, if you are not ethnically Jewish and you are incorporated into God's people, people through Jesus the Messiah, that is you. That is me. And that is what becomes so evident in the church, right? As And uh, we've seen this as like a real central part of what 
it means uh, to be uh, the people of God in the New Testament. This was a heavy focus on Galatians, right? Like what actually brings you into this? Um, today we're, we see it also big time in Ephesians as well. Um, but now God's got some words for the leaders of Israel. So as for Israel's leaders, um, all first of all, he calls beasts of the field to devour. Okay, so the beasts are coming to devour. To devour whom? So this is in part at least an oracle of judgment. And first he calls them watchmen. And what are watchmen supposed to do? They're supposed to look. They're supposed to use their eyes. But these watchmen are blind. Not very good watchmen, right? Meaning they are without knowledge. They are like, and now here the second thing they're compared to, dogs, silent dogs. So these dogs don't bark, okay? Um, They're also sleeping all the time. Uh, But what they do care a lot about is their mighty appetite. They never have enough. They're also here called shepherds. But again, like the watchmen without knowledge, they are shepherd with no they are shepherds with no understanding. Instead, they turn their own way, each to his own gain, right? Then feeding their appetite, their dogs who have a big appetite. Um, and here, here in fact, so they should be doing things like caring God for God's flock, teaching his law, um, um, exercising justice and righteousness. But instead, what do they do? Come, they say. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. That's that's not how the needy of the people feel. That's not how the oppressed, those who are oppressed to enable this lifestyle of yours, uh, that, that's not how they feel. Um, but you're using your power in order simply to fill yourself with um, this intoxicating drink. Then we come to chapter 57, which is basically like, meanwhile, um, among the hoi polloi, right? So the leaders of Israel are doing this. Meanwhile, what's happening? The righteous man is perishing, and no one cares. No one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands. But guess what? These are the ones whom I will protect, God says. The righteous man is taken away from calamity, he enters into peace. He's the one who will get rest on his bed, Who those who walk in uprightness. But you draw near, sons of sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Do you think it's merely the poor whom you're mar- mocking by your actions? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? A rhetorical question. But I think we know the answer. It is against the Lord, against the Lord himself. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? And then what are they described as doing? So it's not only the fact that there is injustice, right? The righteous are perishing and nobody nobody gives a darn. But, um, but here now they've turned to other gods and to worshiping in ways which God has forgiven. So you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. That expression, under every green tree, is kind of a standard way of talking about worship on these high places of Israel, who slo- which, which may indicate even that—I um, uh, mean, it's, you, it's hard to zero in on this exactly, but this may be one of Isaiah's prophecies that are given before the fall of the kingdom. In fact, the earlier indictment on leaders is the watchmen, uh, the dogs, the the, the shepherds with no understanding. Um, That too kind of sounds like that as well, right? So you have this worship going on on the high places and slaughtering of children in the valleys. This the, And here, this is a pretty clear reference to human sacrifice. Remember, sometimes I've indicated that sometimes it's a little ambiguous as to whether or not that's actually what, like, making your sons pass through the fire is. Here, the, it doesn't cut any quarters. It's slaughtering children in the valleys, under the clefts of rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. So like the, the characteristics of the valley, like that's where they're most at home. To them, you pour out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent from these things? Am I supposed to just ignore this? 
on a high and lofty mountain, you've set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. So a lot of the imagery here is how at how much you're kind of like how you're there so much that you pretty much live there is the idea, right? That's so that's what among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. But what's going on in the valleys? They're slaughtering children, right? That's that the, this place is your lot. So you've set up your bed on this high and lofty mountain where your high places are. Behind the door and the doorpost, you've set up your memorial, right? This is the place. This is what I want to be remembered for. Uh, for deserting me, you've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. So you get out of bed in the middle of the night. You go up to it. You've made it wide. You've made it, you know, like, let's, let's deck this place out. We're going to be here a while. You've made a covenant for yourself with them. You loved their bed. You've looked on their nakedness. Notice the um, the the uh, sexual language here, the uncovering of nakedness and the uh, over the per, perhaps the sexual connotations and looking on nakedness. But it's it, the I, I, again the idea is like this is your home where you do home stuff. You journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent them even to Sheol. You could do this because you're rich, in other words. You were wearied with the length of your way, and you did not say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength so that you were not faint. So, right, it, it's, it's difficult, right? This it sounds like all this stuff you're doing takes a lot of work, but you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. I'm going to do it so I can devote myself to doing all this stuff up on the high places. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Okay, Because it wasn't me whom you were dreading and fearing. Um, have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Right, the the warnings have been coming. I've given you so many chances, and then in in what I think kind of sounds like sarcasm here, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. All these all these little statues that you've got collected there in your shrines, the wind will carry them all off, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land, and shall inherit my holy mountain. All right, Psalm 110. <clears throat> As I've mentioned before, Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter of the Bible, of the Old Testament, in the New Testament. It's all over the place, and for several different reasons. So this is a very much a messianic psalm. It's by David, and it's about the future um, uh, Messiah, the expect the expected one who will reign on the throne of David forever. Okay, and um, so one way in which it's used, and I've, I've noted this before, it's used by Jesus when he's being given all send all these questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to entrap him. And he's like, "Here, I have a question for you," and 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 he he basically makes the point from this verse right here. The, uh, so Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he says, how is it that David speaking in this—Jesus uh, does— how is it that D David speaking in the Spirit calls, calls the Christ his Lord? Okay, so no, and notice this, and this is a psalm I've, I've, I've said before where authorship does matter, right? Because— Jesus is making the point that this is David speaking, right? But he's calling, uh, he's calling his offspring. He's calling the one whom this psalm is about his Lord, which is really weird. And that's the point that Jesus uh, makes off of this, right? To 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 make the point that the 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 future Messiah to come, the future King on the throne of David to come, will be greater than David. And this is shocking, right? Because usually in the mindset then, the great ones are your ancestors. Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than Moses? And here, are you greater than David? But David here is acknowledging the surpassing greatness of the one to come. So the Lord, that is Yahweh, is speaking to, to, to this future Davidic king, and he tells him, sit at my right hand, right, this place of great honor, until I make your enemies your footstool. So I will, I will subdue the nations before you. I will, I will essentially give you all things. Um, so these, these are also quoted 
Um, again, these are quoted all over the place. Hebrews 1.13 quotes, uh, sit at my right hand, and this notion of um, God making all of his enemies his footstool, that's quoted directly in Hebrews 10.13, and the concept of that, um, if not very close language, uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 15.25, Ephesians 1.22, Hebrews 2.8, 1 Peter 3.22, okay? And uh, so that's typically the part that's quoted, um, but then you get a bunch of other verses which really do carry forth this theme. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is what God is doing for his Davidic king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Um, and then we have this other very interesting verse, and this kind of comes out of left field. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So certainly we've seen in the narratives of, uh, particularly in the narrative of 2 Samuel, uh, we also get uh, some of it in uh, 1 Chronicles, that David does priestly, priestly stuff. And um, probably sometimes with the assistance of actual priests, you know, when there's actual ritual stuff to be observed. Um, but here, this Davidic offspring is really associated with priestly activity. Um, but uh, of course, there's an issue here, and this will become part of the argument of Hebrews 7:15 through 21, which uses this text heavily. The problem being is that if you are in ancient Israel, and you want to, or seeking to obey the law of Moses, right, you uh, you can only do priestly stuff if you're an offspring of Aaron, right, if you're of the tribe of Levi. But the Davidic king is of the tribe of Judah. So how is it that Psalm 110 can call the Davidic Messiah, the expected king, a priest, a priest forever, well, it's because he belongs to a different order, and that is the order of Melchizedek. Of course, Melchizedek from Genesis 14. Another thing that makes the, this verse just slaps you upside the head. It's totally unexpected. Melchizedek is mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament besides here and Genesis 14. And who is he in Genesis 14? He is a king, likely a king of Jerusalem. He is a king of, pre, uh, of peace. Okay, and he is a king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness, or maybe my king is righteous, something like that. And um, and not only that, but Abraham acknowledges the legitimacy of his priesthood, and Abraham gives him the 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 tithe, of uh, uh, the the tenth of the spoil that has been taken uh, from his victory over these foreign kings who have invaded the land. Um, so you're a priest forever after, uh, but of the of that kind, of a kind who is not whose priesthood is not dependent upon the law of Moses, not dependent upon the Sinai covenant, which is as we saw in Je in in Galatians, right? Kind of like a temporary covenant put in place until the coming of the Messiah. No, there is an enduring thing that's going on forever. And that is the and that is where the priesthood of the Davidic Messiah, that is where it comes from. And now the last three verses, I'm not going to spend too much time at, expect to, except to say that this is a fun exercise in figuring out what pronouns refer to, who is being spoken of. So is the Lord, in lowercase there, is that supposed to be Yahweh or is that supposed to be the Davidic Messiah? And if so, because if it's one, then the your right hand is, so if it's the Messiah, the Lord, then the your right hand is probably God's right hand, which makes sense. He's sitting at God's right hand in verse one. But it could also be the other way around, where the Lord, lowercase here, is referring to Yahweh. And at that case, Yahweh is at the Messiah's right hand, which is a weird way to put it. But maybe it's exactly the kind of language that we sometimes find in the Bible that's supposed to shock us. And who is the one who's shattering the kings on the day of his wrath? Is it, is it, uh, is it the Messiah? Is it the Lord? Or maybe it's the Messiah shattering the kings on the day of 
Yahweh's wrath, right? And you get all these kinds of things. So I kind of just leave this last paragraph to uh, to you to figure out, to play with a little bit. I'm not sure there's solid answers to that. But yeah, so Psalm 10 is a, is a very important psalm. Uh, it's good fun and a wild ride and a and um, really, really interesting theology. All right, let's go now to Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, so remember how Ephesians is very celebratory about God and his grace and uh, what he's done for his people. And um, and here now we've got, um, we've got some new emphases coming forth in chapter 2. So all these things that God has done for us in chapter 1, in contrast to where you come from. And I think this is important, right? Like, don't forget who you were before Christ called you. And who were you? Well, you were dead in trespasses and sins, right? That, right? That, that the coming to life in Christ, being born again, right, is, is called, is, is the giving of life, right? And, and here we have, <clears throat> notice, um, being lost in sin and disconnected from God, being called death. Um, this is a very important verse for uh, death in the Bible being used this way, that it's not merely a physical thing. It, it does include that. That is part of that realm, but it is. Uh, but there is um, a very real way in which Scripture speaks of death as being cut off from God, without God, um, and the life that is in him. So you were dead, and dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, so that's that's what your life was all about. You once walked in those, whereas now you were to walk by the Spirit, right? That's that's what you lived in, following the course of this world. Like this is that's just how this world is. Um, we're in a, a a world that is completely characterized by trespasses, sins, and and the death that they bring. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here, I do think we have a, a reference to Satan, uh, to the the you know the spiritual being who is the embodiment of evil, who uh, whose domain is the domain of trespasses and sin and death. And it's interesting that it calls him the power of the uh, the prince of the power of the air. So the air is just it's everything around you. It's whatever is between earth and heavens, okay? That's his dominion. That's his domain, uh, at least in a sense, right? That we know Christ has victory over him. Uh, now is the ruler of this world cast out, but he's still here, and he still exerts influence, particularly on the sons of disobedience, those whose lives are characterized by this disobedience, these trespasses, this sin. So, so the so he's got. So he's got power over, you can essentially say, the entire world. Power that we would want to qualify, it is, uh, he's on a leash, right? He does nothing that God does not allow him to do, um, but nevertheless, he is here and he exerts influence over everything. Everything that we experience is is part, in a sense, of his domain. And, and we are in this time now in which um, all of Christ's enemies, as Psalm 110 says, are being uh, made his footstool, are being placed under his feet, but that ultimate victory has not yet come to pass. And so we're introduced to this concept that I think this passage brings out very nicely. We've seen it a little bit already in Ephesians, but it comes out really strong here, and that is kind of like the healthy Christian way of viewing um, our hope and our present situation, and that is with the expression, already, not yet, okay? There are aspects of the future that we are already living out, that are that are a reality in our lives already, but it is not yet fully consummated. And so there, there are, there, there are very, there's a sense in which um, these things have not yet fully uh, ripened. They're not yet fully true. So there is an already aspect of our faith and a not yet. And here we kind of see that first with the evil, right? That that he's he's already defeated, but he's also not yet fully defeated, right? He's he's still here. Okay, and we'll come back to that already not yet in a few verses. Um, because not to just point fingers at the world, among whom we all once lived 
uh, in the and we we know what this is like in the passions of our flesh, right? These are the things that are. This is what our Lord is the the carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's what that's whom we listen to. That's that's what we carry out. It sounds like my kids upstairs are carrying out the uh, desires of the body and the mind. Uh, <laughs> it's summer here while I'm recording this, so they're all home from school. So that's that's whom we were by nature, children of wrath, right? By from from the birth, from the here we have you know contributes to our understanding of what original sin is that we are born in this state of death and alienation from God by nature, children of wrath, sons of di- not sons of God, sons of disobedience, not children of God, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, and that's our state naturally. But then these next two words but God, but God being rich in mercy. And remember, rich in mercy in a way that is true of one whose thoughts are not like our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways, uh, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth. Um, So God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, right? This is an act of God's love. Even when we, because what are we contributing at this point? Nothing. We are, and he uses this phrase again, dead in our trespasses, dead, unable to come to him, unable to respond to him, unable to do anything that is not tainted in some way with these trespasses and sins. He took us and made us alive together with Christ, right? This idea that we see in Romans 6, right, that that we are raised with Christ, um, that what happened to—that when we are in Christ and we, through faith expressed in baptism, die with him, that we are also raised to life with him. He made us alive together in Christ. With Christ, here we see some already not yet, right? Because that's very much true of us, right? We're living eternal life now. We're living that life now, but there's also a sense in which we're not living it uh, uh, to 100%, I suppose we could say, right? Because there's a sense in which we will be uh, experience the physical resurrection from the dead, like what we read about in Romans 8, what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, right? So there's an already aspect of our life with Christ, and there's a not yet aspect of our life with Christ. And Paul reminds us, by grace you have been saved, right? You are contributing trespasses and sins. God is contributing everything. He's the one who gives you life. Uh, he And not only did he raise us up with him, already not yet, right? Because one day we look forward to being raised, but here Paul's saying there's a very real sense in which you've already been raised, um, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm seated at my desk right now, right? So how is this true? It's true in the already, not yet. There's a very real sense in which we, as children of God, reign with Christ now, but it has not already fully been accomplished. So that—and and here we have that temporal distinction of the already, not yet—so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, so that we may experience all of what that means, and not just— in part, not just seeing in part, seeing as in a mirror dimly right now. And then we have one of the clearest explanations of the freeness of the gospel in the Bible. For by grace you have been saved, by God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And notice that faith here, as we saw very much in Galatians, as we've seen in Romans, is the means by which we receive this salvation, this grace of God, as opposed to it being our own doing. It's the gift of God, and in, in case there's any uh, question as to what it means, what he means by your own doing, um, it's not the result of works, okay, so that no one may boast. And here, note that the works here, he's not saying works of the law, so he can't be like, oh, he only means circumcision and Sabbath-keeping and food laws and stuff. No, it's not the result of your own doing. It's not the result of 
works. It's not the result of your efforts, of your ability to please him. Because how much ability do you really have to please him when you are by nature a child of wrath, when you are dead in trespasses and sins? No, it's not a result of the good things you do. It's a result of faith. Um, so no one may boast. Again, very Romans tasting there, right? Because that Paul elaborates on uh, how the gospel eliminates boasting in Romans 4, uh, right? Like you can't say, hey, I'm here because I'm so great, right? Or even because I, I, I'm so wise and I knew to, to make a decision for Christ of, as if it's autonomous, right? Like that, that it's not based on our unconditional, God's unconditional election of us. No, God's salvation is such that no human being may boast. You have nothing good to say about yourself except that I am loved by God, um, and he has saved me, not of my own works, but as, as his gracious gift. But I like—another thing I really like about this passage is that it just says it's not a result of works, but that doesn't mean that good works do not have a role in the Christian life. Indeed, they're super important. It's just that you have to understand where they come in the in the what we might call the economy of salvation, right? They are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the sure result of our salvation. And you have that very clearly here because we are his workmanship. So the the you know the look at the excellent think of something that you admire the workmanship on a car uh, or maybe woodworking a nice piece of furniture or something right like well we, that that the, that worker is very skilled but you are god's workmanship created in christ jesus for good works okay uh notice the good works are right there it's just that they're not the cause for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in the in the final the second chapter uh paragraph of this chapter we see here um I think this is great the fulfillment of what we were reading about in Isaiah 56 these foreigners who come to to uh, join themselves to the Lord this concept that we are incorporated together under the the fulfilled Davidic covenant in Jesus. Okay, so he says, remember at one time, you you Gentiles in the flesh, who were at that time called, and even now are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, so they call you the uncircumcised, uh, but they're merely called the circumcision. Remember what Paul says about circumcision in, in Romans, where, you know, um, it's the the one who is circumcised but doesn't keep the law, right? What it means to be truly circumcised. Circumcision is true. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It's like that kind of thing. And here there might even be more attached to that in that, like, to be quote unquote circumcised is a symbol of belonging to God. But but you're not truly circumcised by hands. You're truly circumcised by God. Where circumcision here is given like a full metaphorical meaning, like it is in Colossians. Um, but so even though you're insulted as not belonging to God's people by those who are still the circumcision, um, who merely have circumcision, as Paul says here, which is made in the flesh by hands, because whose workmanship are you? Are you the moil's workmanship? Or are you God's workmanship? Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, and all that that meant, you were alienated from the people of God. You weren't his people. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. Uh, Abraham who? Moses who? David who? You have no idea about them, right? You had no hope. You were out without God in the world, which we've seen is ruled by Satan, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near, and how? By the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ. Second time in this letter now he's mentioned Jesus' blood that has saved us. Uh, for he himself is our peace, peace both with God, yes, and now notice too, peace with one another. He's made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, right? It's that because it is no longer the law that gives us our identity in God, it is faith in Christ. Because you used to say, who follows the law, who doesn't, um, 
Do you have these things? Don't you? And it became a cause of hostility, right? You're scoffed at. Look at the uncircumcision. Look at those dogs, right? No. Now we all stand before God as empty-handed sinners saved by nothing but grace through faith, okay? He's broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, right? That the, that the law is no longer the thing that defines us as the people of God, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Here we have the body of Christ kind of language, and might reconcile us both together, Jew and Gentile, together to God in one body through the cross. He said it's through the blood. Here he says it's through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice this is why this is why uh, the stuff he so was so concerned about the stuff he was in Galatians, right? This is why it's so out of step with the gospel to only eat with Jewish believers and not Gentile believers as well. This is why it's so out of step with the gospel to say, hey, all you Gentile believers need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, okay? God came and he preached, or Christ came, we might say, and preached uh, peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit. There's not a spirit for the Jew and not a spirit for the Gentile to the Father. And so you Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, are no longer strangers, no longer aliens. These are terms from the Old Testament, the stranger among you, the alien among you, but your fellow citizens. That permanent inheritance is truly permanent, and it is truly yours in Christ. You are a fellow citizen with the saints, those who are holy, set apart by God, members of the household of God. You belong here. And this house now is a house that is the people of God. Its foundation are the apostles and the prophets. So you've got Old Testament, you've got New Testament, right? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's this temple imagery we saw in 1 Corinthians. That, 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 and what is a temple? It is a dwelling place for God, and this is built by the Spirit. This temple is built by the Spirit. This Spirit, this temple, Jesus the cornerstone, foundation, apostles and prophets, and its bricks are Jews and Gentiles together, anyone who comes to God through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for being with me. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.